0: Hi there, I'm Robin Anear, back with a new season of Nothing on TV, a podcast that ransacks Trove newspapers, the National Library of Australia's fabulous digital repository of historical newsprint, to bring you stories from a time when there was literally nothing on TV. Don't be surprised if the rollout of this season of Nothing on TV turns out a bit more shambolic than the first. That's just the way my year's taking shape. But I'm kicking off with a story I presented recently at the 2019 Castlemaine Festival. Here's our starting point, an item from page two of the Melbourne Herald on the 19th of February 1887, to wit, a brave young woman, a gallant rescue of a little boy from drowning was effected on Thursday last at Hegarty's Baths, St Kilda, by Miss Simmons, the well-known teacher of swimming. The boy fell into the deep water in the baths and Miss Simmons plunged in with her clothes on and brought him out to safety. The courageous and timely act of Miss Simmons was properly appreciated by the boy's parents who presented her with a cheque for 20 pounds. Now listeners who've been with nothing on TV from the start may recall that our very first episode began with the drowning of a young boy in a waterhole and the supposed retrieval of his body by a plucky trained elephant. This time also our interest lies in the gallant rescuer, Miss Simmons, the well-known teacher of swimming. This news report, it sounds a bit like a plant to me. You know, a fairly unremarkable occurrence, a child fished out of the deep end, being pitched as a telegenic tale of heroism to draw attention, presumably, to swimming instruction at Hegarty's Baths. And well, fair enough. Call it a community service announcement, since goodness knows... At that period, few children, girls especially, could swim to save themselves. At that time, the degree of undress required still made swimming an iffy thing for women. But Hegarty's had a separate ladies' baths, as well as a lady instructor. As a semi-respectable form of exercise, swimming for women had first become a thing in September 1875, about ten years earlier, when Agnes Beckwith, just 14 years old, swam from London Bridge to Greenwich, a distance of about five miles down the sewer-like Thames. Her feet came just a week after Matthew Webb, smeared in porpoise oil, became the first person to swim the English Channel. Now Miss Simmons had begun teaching swimming at Hegarty's Baths on the waterfront at Bayside St Kilda, not many miles from the Melbourne GPO, in 1885. But while that made her a pioneer, She wasn't the pioneer. That would have been the legendary Miss Elphinstone Dick, real name Harriet Rowell, who'd been conducting lessons at Hegarty's and the rival Captain Kenny's baths ever since Agnes Beckwith made news with her swim from London Bridge. In the 1880s, that boom decade, Melburnians were speculation mad. Yet Hegarty's touted swimming lessons for ladies as a safe investment. Ladies progressed swimmingly by attending Miss Simmons' classes ran the advertisements in the paper. She thoroughly taught the breast, side and trudgeon strokes, as well as fancy strokes, diving, life-saving, etc. What was this Trudgeon stroke? It was a precursor to freestyle, an overarm action, but with a scissor kick like you'd use in side stroke. Miss Simmons also taught something called the Holbein method, which seems to have been a kind of water aerobics. And she ran ladies' gymnastics classes on dry land as well. In 1896, her star pupil at Hegarty's would be Lady Brassy, wife of the new Governor of Victoria, who'd cycled down from Government House each morning before seven for a dip. Lady Brassy was a swimmer in England, said Melbourne Punch, but is now taking a few finishing lessons from Miss Simmons, who is as expert as a mermaid. Hegarty's hosted the inaugural St Kilda State Schools Swimming Club competition in 1899, the girls swimming their races, of course, at the ladies' baths, and it speaks volumes for the good work done by Miss Simmons, said the Pran Telegraph, that now some 29 girls can swim across the baths, while a few can do the 50 yards with such speed that they may carry off some of the prizes in next year's state school matches. After the girls' races were concluded, Miss Simmons gave the assemblage an interesting exhibition of her skill in swimming performing in the water several difficult feats which called forth vociferous applause from the young people present. Too much praise cannot be bestowed upon this lady. At around the same time she'd first appeared at Hegarty's, the mid-1880s, Miss Simmons was active in the fledgling Victorian Women's Suffrage Society. In fact, she was their first secretary, and when Victorian women finally got the vote in 1908, she would be one of those named by Vida Goldstein as pioneers of the movement. The presiding genius of the Women's Suffrage Society at the outset was Henrietta Dugdale, who was also a leading advocate of rational dress, which called for the adoption of bloomers and foregoing of corsets. Decades later, Miss Simmons would be remembered as having worn bloomers in her walks abroad in St Kilda. In keeping with the times, the papers referred to her cryptically as Miss Simmons, or Miss A. Simmons, only in 1895, courtesy of a police report, did she emerge as Agnes. According to the Pran Telegraph, thieves made off with money, jewellery, watches, and a pair of opera glasses from Miss Simmons' house at St Kilda. Entrance being affected by the forcing open of the kitchen window, they were lucky she hadn't rigged up an alarm system or even electrified the window frame since the year before. Miss Simmons had been listed the only female among those passing their first year exam in applied electricity at the Working Men's College, now RMIT University. So that was Miss Simmons, Miss Agnes Simmons of St Kilda. No question, she was an interesting woman and a worthy one, but she's only half or say a third of our story. There was, besides her, another maiden lady, or spinster in archaic legalese, Miss G H Minet. That's M I N E T. The family had Huguenot origins, and the G H that stood for Geraldine Helena. She was English-born and proud to proclaim herself one of the Minets of Baldwins in Kent, and for what it was worth, a great-great-granddaughter of Sir Charles Van Notten Pole of Wolverton Park in Hampshire. She came to Australia in 1888 by way of San Francisco, and made a beeline for Mildura, the brand new irrigation settlement that was just beginning to take shape on the Victorian side of the mighty Murray River, in the parched northwestern corner of the colony. Alfred Deakin, Victoria's Chief Secretary and Commissioner for Water Supply at that time, was a red-hot convert to the doctrine of irrigationism, which must in the first place have originated, I guess, on the Nile Delta, but this latter-day movement had emerged from Where else? California. From my admittedly slight reading of it, there seems to have been a proselytising, evangelical sort of aspect to the irrigation movement, with its vision of plenty in the desert. Dare I suggest there was a dash of snake oil amid all that watery abundance? At any rate, I'm prepared to hazard that besides the speculative impetus, there was a utopian tinge to the experiment. After all, Wasn't Mr Deacon himself a spiritualist turned theosophist and a lifelong seeker? I wouldn't mind guessing that it was the prospect of Eden in the Antipodes that drew Miss Manet to Mildura. She lasted there perhaps three years, buying one of the first town lots and contributing to the beginnings of the hospital, before retreating to Melbourne where her younger sister, Mrs Parker, was living. An advertisement in the age in 1891 had Miss Manet seeking a builder to make additions to her sister's house, Maybank, in South Yarra. The next year, 1892, she took over a business in Melbourne's eclectic Eastern Arcade. High up on the Burke Street hill, alongside the teeming Eastern Market, the Eastern Arcade was home to an assortment of astrologers and phrenologists, chicken hatcheries and herbalists. Miss Monet's new venture would have fit right in there, although she did complain to the health authorities about the chickens. Here's how she advertised in the papers. Miss G. H. Minay, Advanced Literature and Book Agent, 13 Eastern Arcade. A full stock of works dealing with, amongst others, the following subjects. Ancient Worship, Astrology, Alchemy, Animal Magnetism, Clairvoyance, etc. Dreams, Divination, Demonology, Freemasonry, Folklore, Herbalism, Magic, Mesmerism, Metaphysics, Mysticism, Occultism, Palmistry, physiognomy, Phrenology, Psychology, Spiritualism, Symbolism, Theosophy, Witchcraft, and all branches of political economy and social science. She also carried The Book of Nature, an illustrated marriage guide by M. Lafayette Byrne, M.D., which, she claimed, contains information of the greatest importance to those contemplating marriage, as well as to those newly married. Every man and woman in the country needs this book, and to that end, for just four shillings, Miss Monet would send them a copy through the post, securely wrapped and free from observation. Well, either the advanced literature and Book Depot was a dud, true there was a depression on, but you'd think such an enterprise would go gangbusters in hard times, but either business was bad, or Miss Monet soon tired of it, or both, because within a year she donated her entire stock in trade, not just the books and tracts, but the shelving as well, to the Melbourne branch of the Theosophical Society. To house it all, the Society had to move to larger premises, and Miss Monet's old stock would appear to have been the genesis of the Theosophical Bookshop, which still operates in the city today. A suburban branch of the Society, the Maybank branch, met regularly at the home of Miss Monet's sister in South Yarra. And around the middle of 1893, records show, Miss G. H. Monet paid the annual membership dues of none other than Agnes Simmons, the mermaid of Hegarty's Baths. Insofar as Miss Simmons and Miss Monet are remembered today, which is to say, hardly at all, they routinely supply a bit of colour to local history pieces, but when they're remembered... It's as a pair of cranky old dykes. The latter part of which assessment is mere supposition. True, both were maiden ladies, and they were personal friends. Miss Simmons was athletic and given to wearing trousers, and her fellow swimming instructor, Miss Elphinstone Dick, lived in what was, for its time, an openly acknowledged long-term partnership with another woman. So, yeah, maybe they were lesbians, but there's no saying for sure. As for old... they weren't especially. Miss Monet would have turned 50 when she was running the Advanced Literature Depot, and Miss Simmons was younger by about nine years and would go on teaching swimming for ages yet. So, no, not all that old. But were they cranks? Well, Miss Monet, it's true, seemed to be susceptible to some fairly flaky propositions, but what didn't count as a flaky proposition in 1893? Women's suffrage? Female dress that didn't restrict movement and even breathing, the practice of birth control. They'd all have been relegated to the same basket as vegetarianism, cremation, spiritualism, and theosophy, with the press labelling their adherents cranks or worse, spinsters maybe, or anarchists. What did it for the Mrs. Simmons and Minet was their involvement in a peculiar confluence, so 1890s, of spiritualism with coal mining in that coal-driven age victoria found itself dependent on the despised neighboring colony of new south wales which had rich reserves of the best black coal when the great depression hit in 1891 it sent victoria's long resplendent wave of prosperity crashing onto the rocky shores of humiliation and ruin and now striking coal miners the clash of protectionism that was victoria against free trade New South Wales, and just plain burning rivalry had made Victoria determined to end its reliance on New South Wales and ensure its own future prosperity by discovering a source of coal within its own borders. For speculators and would-be capitalists in 1890s Victoria, coal prospecting, backed by the government, was just about the only show in town. Miss Monet seems to have inherited a more than modest fortune on her father's death 20 years earlier and must still have had some of it because she invested heavily in an outfit called the Victorian Coal Company. Acting on the positive advice of an expert the company sought and was granted for 80 pounds practically nothing a license to drill for coal under Hobson's Bay and along its shoreline. Indeed said the age The company's expert is confident that this will prove to be the true coal measure of Victoria, commencing at Williamstown and lying under the whole bay from St Kilda to Brighton. The government's own geologists ridiculed the idea, saying that there was no more chance of finding coal in this rock than of discovering pearls in a piece of paving stone. But the Victorian Coal Company went ahead and bought a giant diamond-tipped rock drill, costing £2,200, and acknowledged by the government drill expert, Mr Ronaldson, just fancy there being such a person, to be the finest in the colony. They set it up with a tall iron fretwork poppet head, steam engine and all the rest of the gear, just east of St Kilda Beach, on the headland jutting into the bay that was variously called St Kilda Bluff, or just The Bluff, and later, and still today, Point Ormond. But mainly, back then, it was called the Red Bluff which is euphonious enough for us to stick with it. The drill started work, boring, straight down at the end of 1893, and pretty soon it cut through a seam of inferior brown coal about four and a half feet thick. That wasn't quite the 12 feet of black coal they were hoping for, but it was a start. At New Year 1894, deep in the trough of the Depression, the Argus joked that Melbourne is in danger of being undermined for coal while the age shamelessly spruiked the coal company's prospects of success. Of all the places in the colony next to the city of Melbourne itself, St Kilda would appear to be one of the most unlikely spots where one might expect to find coal, said the age. Yet, incredible as it may seem, if the company's anticipations are realised, they should be able to get enough coal out of this area to serve Melbourne and the colony generally for all time. People in Melbourne would be able to have their coal supplied direct from the pit and lighters, that is barges, for supplying the great ocean steamers would be able to load almost at the pit's mouth. If the colony had been searched for the most favourable position for a coal mine, no better spot than this could have been fixed upon. But it was not to be. Though drilling on the Red Bluff would continue for two years, reaching a depth of nearly 4,000 feet, Deeper than any rock bore in Australasia or than any coal mine in the world, according to the Melbourne Argus, and costing six and a half thousand pounds, not another trace of coal was come across. The Victorian Coal Company was an unqualified dud. At the end of 1895, drilling ceased and the company went into liquidation. Adulation by the press turned to mockery, and only now, now that failure was certain, did Miss Minet's part and the lesser part played by Miss Simmons in the debark come to light? The venture, explained the Argus, was controlled by a spirit, familiarly known as the old gent, who operates through a medium, a young man in one of the government departments. Before the present bore was put down, the spirit advised some of his friends to bore for coal at Clayton, near Dandenong. This was in eighteen ninety three but no coal was discovered. He then directed them to sink a bore at the St Kilda Bluff, being aware from his own personal knowledge that an extensive bed of the best anthracite smokeless coal was to be found a good way below the surface. (laughs) So that's what the company meant by acting on the positive advice of an expert. The report in the Argus goes on. He told them, this is the spirit, that they would all be millionaires in a very short time and directed them to look up a wealthy maiden lady who lived in one of the southern suburbs, that would be South Yarra, to get her to find the capital. The lady took the bait with a celerity which exceeded the most sanguine anticipations. She got it into her head that a magnificent coal field would be discovered, which would find employment for all the unemployed in Victoria, and which would be the means of lifting the colony out of its present unfortunate depression. The spirit attended many meetings of the board, giving instructions through the medium who would go into a trance at a moment's notice, and, speaking with the spirit's voice, convey directions to the others who were present. As the lady capitalist began to get a little dissatisfied with the way the business was proceeding, the old gent recommended that she should take a trip to Europe about six months ago, and she very obligingly departed, leaving another maiden lady, a personal friend of hers, to manage her interests the Lady Capitalist has lost about £3,000 in drilling operations alone. Now a shipping notice in a Sydney paper some months earlier had listed Miss G. H. Monet among the passengers on the mail ship Alameda, bound not for Europe but for San Francisco via Auckland, and then towards the middle of the following year, 1895, we find her addressing the Brisbane Theosophical Society, giving an interesting account of the work and methods in the other branches in the southern colonies and New Zealand, which rather suggests that she'd left the Alameda at Auckland and been there for some time. Miss Monet sinks pretty much out of sight then. She and her sister were back in England by 1897, still active in theosophical circles, and, as far as I can tell, Miss Monet never did return to Australia. As for Miss Simmons, she was still at St Kilda, still teaching swimming in all its branches to ladies and children in 1905. Five or six years later she was living up on a farm at Callista in the scenic Dandenong Ranges east of Melbourne. When a bushfire swept through there in 1926, listed among the casualties or near casualties was Miss Simmons, aged 76, of Callista, who was endeavouring to save horses in the stables at the rear of her house when her dress caught fire. The flames, said the Weekly Times, were extinguished by firefighters who were beating back the blaze from the house. In spite of their efforts, the fire took the stables, but the horses and Miss Simmons were saved. The press coverage that followed her death three and a half years later would, I can't help thinking, have been anathema to Miss Simmons had she been tuning in from the spirit world. The Melbourne Herald ran the headline, Woman Hermit Dead and described her this way she was thin and had heavy black hair which she wore down to her collar her dress was always the same riding breeches and leggings well if that's the case how was it that her dress had caught fire but to continue from the herald every week she went to the store for her supplies everyone in the district knew miss simmons and residents have always speculated as to the story of her life but she always kept to herself One story told was that she lived in a mansion in St Kilda and kept a retinue of servants. What brought her to living in a tumble-down hut remained a secret. The Truth newspaper out of Sydney headlined the story Cultured Woman as Hermit. Known as the Hermit of the Hills, Miss Agnes Simmons, an octogenarian, actually she'd have been 78 or 9, whose tall, gaunt figure was constantly astride a horse, has died. Various stories were rife as to her past, most of them crediting her with being an aristocrat. Obviously a cultured woman, she could converse fluently on art, literature and kindred subjects. And according to the Weekly Times, which called her the Hermit of Callista, for nearly 30 years she lived in the hills with only her five horses for company, the reason for her voluntary seclusion having never been revealed. It was known, however, that she had no liking for men or the male sex, and it is significant that all her pets were mares. She was an educated woman, and it was said that she had run away from home in England at the age of 18 years because her father had sold a hunter to which she was greatly attached. In the Melbourne Argus, a feature writer named Edgar Holt dubbed Miss Simmons the strange hermit of Callista. Holt, he clearly fancied himself a student of human nature and considered Miss Simmons' alleged running away from home at 18 a characteristic undertaking, for she was a woman of iron determination, tall and masculine in features. From England she went to New Zealand, and from there she came to Australia. For some time she lived in a house at St Kilda, but with a characteristic abruptness she left her home suddenly, leaving personal belongings in the house, and retired to Callista. Friends of hers, yeah the kinds of friends who'd have talked to Edgar Holt, claimed that she'd inherited £3,000 from a relative in England some time ago. Perhaps it was an inheritance that had enabled her, abruptly or otherwise, to give up her job at the bars and retire to Callista. Edgar Holt stated that Miss Simmons had originally come to Australia via New Zealand. and that was news to me, and though I wasn't much inclined to believe him, I did a search at papers past that's the New Zealand equivalent of Trove. And sure enough, there she was. She'd have been more like twenty five than eighteen when she arrived in Dunedin from London in January 1875. From what I can tell, she settled in a cottage at Blueskin Bay, about ten miles north of the city. No place near Dunedin, it was said, presents so many advantages for a watering place as Blueskin Bay. For bathing it is unrivalled since it is the only bay along the coast which sharks cannot enter owing to the shallow water at the bar. How perfect for such a one as Miss Simmons. A railway line ran from Blueskin Bay to the center of Dunedin where, the very same month that Miss Simmons arrived, and perhaps by no coincidence, there opened a Turkish bars establishment which every Wednesday was set apart exclusively for the benefit of ladies with lessons conducted by a young lady who is an excellent swimmer in time we learn courtesy of the Dunedin Evening Star that the ladies select swimming class was under the supervision of miss simmons then at the end of 1881 abruptly or perhaps not she sold up her cottage at blueskin bay and sailed for melbourne and a long tenure at haggerty's baths in st kilda when she died in 1929 there were hundreds of letters stashed and strewn about miss simmons hut at callista some of them dating back to the early 1890s, according to the policeman who found them, along with cash amounting to £130. Neighbours stated that she'd spent most of her money on horse rugs and horse feed, and indeed, in her will, she left everything to the VSPA, the Victorian Society for the Protection of Animals, on the condition that good homes be found for her horses. One of them, an elderly blue roan named Dolly, would live out her years at the VSPA's rest home. After selling Miss Simmons' farm at Callista and her house at St Kilda, the VSPA benefited to the tune of about £900, a small portion of which paid for a headstone in the Ferntree Gully Cemetery that read, Agnes Simmons, a true friend to animals. I wondered if the rumoured wealthy relative who died might actually have been Miss Monet, But no, she was still alive. When she did die... At the end of 1931, in England, a death notice ran in the Argus, suggesting she must still have had friends in Melbourne. That same year, 1931, a history of St. Kilda was published, and thanks to its author, John Butler Cooper, a fresh light was shone on the folly of the Red Bluff coal venture, and in particular on Miss Monet and Miss Simmons' part in it. Cooper wrote of their great friendship, which began at St. Kilda and had lasted until Miss Simmons' death. Miss Simmons, too, was a convert to spiritualism, he wrote, and shared Miss Minet's unwavering faith in Pat. Pat was the name Cooper gave to the coal company's spirit guide. At the time, you'll recall, he'd been referred to as the old gent. Cooper went on. Miss Simmons invested some of her money in the mine, though Miss Minet was the backbone, financially and spiritually, of the whole venture. In her honour, he stated, the steam engine powering the Red Bluff rock drill had been named Helena. A large brass tablet on the boiler of the engine proclaimed that it was so. Now, it's true that Helena was Miss Monet's middle name, but she always went by her first name, Geraldine. No, I would bet you anything that the Red Bluff steam engine was christened Helena as a homage not to Miss Monet, but rather to her idol, Madame Helena Blavatsky the founder of Theosophy. J.B. Cooper, in his History of St Kilda, revivified some of the stories that had been put about after Miss Simmons' death. He had her and Miss Monet running a farm together after a fashion, which permitted no masculine member of the furred, haired or feathered tribe. Come to think of it, it was Cooper who had Miss Simmons wearing bloomers on her walks abroad at St Kilda which makes me wonder whether he hadn't just extrapolated backwards from reports of the masculine attire that she'd adopted during her years farming at Callista. It's Cooper's version of Miss Simmons and Miss Monet as a pair of credulous man-hating eccentrics that continues to live on, in a small way, in local folklore. I don't know, we can never know their whole story, but we know enough to know this. There was more to them than that. So, valet, Agnes Simmons, pioneering suffragist, athlete, lifesaver, friend to animals. Valet, Geraldine Manet, free thinker, spiritual seeker, independent woman. Valet, Dolly, the faithful and fireproof blue roan from Callista. And valet, the old gent, or pat, whichever he was called, that ectoplasmic faker of anthracitic insight, and his mediumistic mouthpiece, that young man in one of the government departments. Who was he, I wonder, and what was his story? Nothing on TV is homemade in my Verland Heights studio here in Castlemaine, Victoria, Australia. It's produced by Mrs Bradley, my literary agent and muse. Take a look at my show page, com slash TV. For pictures and further reading related to this and other episodes, there's an email link there too, so you can drop me a line. No Twitter or Facebook, I'm afraid. Nothing on TV is proud to be a social media dead zone. You can find and download past episodes of the podcast at the show page or else at Apple Podcasts or wherever. Why not subscribe and have new episodes drop as if by magic into your podcast feed? Also, at my show page, you'll find links to Trove newspapers and to a stack of resources that'll help you delve into Trove's marvels for yourself. Just in case, you know, there's nothing on TV. I'm Robin Ania. Talk to you next time.